on this episode of China Unscripted. China is slowly taking over Antarctica. They're building mysterious facilities that could be militarized, and no one is doing anything to stop them. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Alex Gray. He's a senior fellow in national security affairs at the American Foreign Policy Council, and he served on the U.S. National Security Council staff from 2018 to 2021, including as director for Oceania and Indo-Pacific Security. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So, you know, today we're going to be talking about Antarctica, uh, Chinese territory since ancient times. Yeah, (laughs) that's what they'd like you to think. I'm sure the whole world has been. I'm sure there's a Qing Dynasty manuscript that shows that they had herding rights in uh, Antarctica or something. <laughs> ah, the Chinese buffalo of Antarctica. Yeah, there you Well-known go. Well-known story. Well, so this is interesting because I think a lot of people just think of Antarctica as like a giant ice cube that has no value whatsoever. Why is Antarctica important? Well, it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, there's... Typical to most of these things, there's the possibility that there may be energy resources, there may be rare earth elements. Um, there's certainly in the Southern Ocean, we know that there, there's fishing stocks. Um, there's also potential um, military importance. You know, it, it sits at the South Pole, um, which has the ability from a, a military standpoint to impact uh, satellite communications and telescopic arrays. And there are a number of different military applications that could benefit a country that had a presence near the South Pole um, or that had the ability to, to kind of have un, unimpeded access to Antarctica. So, so there's a lot there. Uh, it's not just frozen, you know, terra nullius. There's, there's a lot uh, that control or dominance in Antarctica gets you as a, as a superpower. Well, you mentioned uh, the military application of Antarctica. According to the Antarctica Treaty, uh, countries aren't allowed to establish military bases or conduct military activity in Antarctica. Well, that's what the treaty says. That's what most countries abide by. And if they don't abide by it, for instance, um, you know, in in certain cases, you're allowed to use military personnel and, and transport aircraft to go and uh, facilitate your scientific endeavors. So, for instance, the United States uses Air Force C-130s to take the National Science Foundation to its uh, its McMurdo station and, and to, to different scientific sites in Antarctica. And that's fine. And, and what we do uh, is we send a uh, notification to the Antarctic Treaty system per the, the requirements of the treaty saying, hey, at this date, at this time, a C-130 with markings so-and-so is going to show up on the continent and it's going to have Master Sergeant so-and-so and Captain so-and-so, and it's all very above board and it's very legalistic. What the Chinese have done is they've started showing up with PLA personnel at their research stations, and they don't tell us, they don't tell the treaty system that they're using PLA uh, officers in what are supposed to be scientific capacities. We only found this out when uh, some netizens were able to, to sleuth this out and make it public. So the, the Chinese have been in violation of the non-militarization uh, parts of the treaty. And, and you know, 
that's just the surface. There's a lot we don't know. There are a lot of unknown unknowns. And, and that's what I think has a lot of us concerned. When was the last time the U.S. inspected any of the Chinese research facilities there? Because inspections are part of the Antarctica Treaty, correct? Inspections are the only mechanism to actually ensure that the treaty's uh, being complied with. And so in 2011, the United States did an inspection. Um, Australia has done one uh, a little bit more recently, I think 2015. New Zealand hasn't done an inspection in 15 years. uh, And they're really the most capable of the Antarctic powers that are aligned with us. Um, And and yet they, they really have not done uh, any inspections in a decade and a half. What really concerns me is the Chinese uh, most recently built a station called Kunlun. And Kunlun is, is down near the magnetic South Pole. And it's on the highest ice feature on the continent, which from a military standpoint, that's going to give you a lot of, um, a lot of potential advantages if you're interested in, in satellites and, and arrays and different things. What we're, I'm particularly concerned about is the fact that the United States, Australia, New Zealand, no one other than Chinese nationals has ever visited the Kunlun station. We have no idea what goes on there. We, we've never, it's never been held to any scrutiny. And the choice of location is so strategic um, that it raises a lot of questions. The only way of which we're going to get answers to is by actually having boots on the ground and doing inspections. I think what's crazy is like 2011 is the last time the U.S. inspected any station. And in 2011, China had not built any artificial islands in the South China Sea, right? Like that's how long ago it was, right? And then, so we know that, that, that China has the ability to build and militarize in just a period of a few years. So we really need to be inspecting these like every year, right? Or can we, I mean, can't we at least get like some kind of like presence there? Like, is it, is it not impossible to like fly uh, U.S. personnel to visit? So it's a, the logistics are really why. It's a combination, in my opinion, of logistics and political will. So, you know, anything in Antarctica is hard. It's just difficult. It's, it's far away. It's cold. It's, it's, you know, normal logistical considerations are amplified tenfold in everything you do on the continent. And so when, when we're, you know, thinking about how the United States is going to do what you're describing, we just haven't made the investments for a long period of time uh, in in the type of things that we used to do to to be an Antarctic power. So icebreakers, right? We we don't have the icebreaker capability that we used to have, which is critical for us to be able to to hit some of the, like the the Chinese uh, Great Wall Station, which is closer to South America. You know, that's where an icebreaker would come in handy. We we don't have that capability right now. We used to have specially fitted C-130s in large numbers that could land on uh, Antarctic airfields, even in, in the uh, winter months, the Antarctic winter. Those have really been neglected and they're in short supply. So we haven't made those decisions. We also, frankly, you know, as someone who served in government and was focused on this, it was not a high priority um, for most of, most of the time I was there and particularly at, at you know, the, the level of Senior officials who are thinking about competition with China, you know, the Arctic was beginning to get some traction. Secretary Pompeo talked about it a lot, paid attention to it. 
Um, we were obviously had a lot of focus on the East and South China Seas. We had even increasing focus on what China was doing in the Atlantic and their, their desire to increase their presence on the uh, you know, west side, west coast of Africa. But Antarctica just did not seem to penetrate as an area where there it was worth pressing investments and raising uh, the kind of the focus on Chinese ambitions to the fore. And I, I think that's that's got to change at the highest levels before we're going to see the money put forward to take these kind of logistical investments. Because it's not, it's expensive stuff. Everything in Antarctica is just, it's hard to do and it's costly. And we've got to have that political will to make those investments. How big physically, like geographically, is Antarctica compared to like the continental United States? Yeah, I don't have a good comparison, but I'll, I'll tell you just the effort of getting from Christchurch, New Zealand, where the Antarctica, New Zealand has a very uh, robust base in uh, the South Island of New Zealand, where we do a lot of our National Science Foundation staging, just the effort to get from there to the New Zealand bases, which are not, you know, a, a really just a couple of hours flight. Um, the logistical preparation involved in doing that is, you know, millions of dollars is incredibly uh, manpower intensive. So if you think about just really a relatively short hop across from New Zealand to, to Antarctica, you think about doing that to do inspections of multiple bases across the width of the continent. You've got most likely, I think, diplomatically, the best way to do this. It can't be the U.S. going and inspecting Chinese bases alone. It's got to be the U.S. with partners and allies inspecting multiple countries' bases. This isn't about targeting China. This isn't about uh, making China the victim. This is about, we have a treaty system. The treaty system requires inspections to make it a viable long-term entity. And so everyone should be subject to the same inspection regime. And that includes the United States. And we've been inspected before. We should be inspected again. And it should be uh, part of our kind of international effort to uphold uh, norms and and values. Uh, If we subscribe to a treaty, we should be anxious to see every aspect of it upheld. Is China inspecting our bases? You know, when I was in government, there was discussion that it might happen. I never saw it happen. Um, I would not be surprised if eventually a decision was made that that they were going to begin a more vigorous inspection regime themselves. Um, partially, I think, because it would it would support their claim to be a the predominant power in Antarctica. Um, but you know, so far where I've seen the most activity, the Russians continue to be very active in Antarctica. Some of the Scandinavian countries like Norway are very, uh, very vigorous in, in upholding the inspection regime. Uh, Argentina is another one that pays a lot of attention to it. Um, but we'll, we'll have to watch and see what the Chinese do ultimately in that area. How many bases does China have in Antarctica? So they have five um, and they also have a runway which when they constructed the Antarctic, most recently they constructed the runway, that is what I think should have been a tip-off to people that there was going to be a, a increased focus by Beijing on long-term uh, presence in Antarctica, that they were going to be thinking about expanding their presence to, to more, you know, more potentially security-focused posture, 
Um, and also, one of the things that if you're concerned as I am about China's adherence to the Madrid Protocol, which is the environmental aspect of, uh, of the treaty system uh, in which says you can't extract resources, you can't mine, you can't uh, do the type of fishing the Chinese are known for. Having a runway signals that there may be some potential interest in increased commercial activity on the continent, which is something we need to be watching very closely. So this runway, like I thought, you know, when, when we send our Air Force planes to land at McMurdo Base, how do they land if there's no runway? They just land on the ice or what? Yeah, so they actually have special skis that'll let you land, um, that, that'll let you land in uh, kind of non-paved, icy conditions. Um, obviously, the maintenance on those things is pretty, pretty expensive and pretty intense. Um, also, I think one of the things the Chinese have, have come to the realization of, and this is, you, you mentioned the South China Sea, every bit of infrastructure that can be implanted in a place like Antarctica adds to the sense of permanence and adds to the sense that China is a power with legitimacy. And if you look at Kunlun, you look at uh, Great Wall Station, you look at the, the airfield, it, what these are massive construction projects in a place where massive construction projects are, are hard to do and are not normal. And it, it's a signal by their very nature, the amount of infrastructure that has to be brought to Antarctica to complete them it's a signal of just how ambitious this approach to the southern continent is. And, and it, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen because the Chinese just woke up one day and decided we're really interested in, in you know, doing Antarctic research. There's, there's a, if you look at their global ambitions and their behavior across the world, you've got to see it in the context of this is part of how the Chinese operate when they're expanding their presence into a, a place they view as strategically vital. And it, it all fits into that context. Do other countries, have other countries build runways in Antarctica? Is China doing something that's out of the norm? So I, it's not out of the norm. The, the New Zealanders have done it. Um, I, I'm sure other countries have done it as well. I think you've got to look at it in the context of the commentary that comes from Xi Jinping and from the senior leadership of the party, which is talking about Antarctica as a part of their, their strategy, their national strategy, which is talking about uh, dominance in Antarctica and using terminology that, that talks directly to, um, you know, that, that speaks of the strategic aspects of the continent. You have to look at it, uh, like I mentioned, with PLA officers who are coming in and are not being reported. Uh, the massive amount of infrastructure that's being put into the airfields and the stations, where they're choosing to build the stations, like I mentioned, the highest ice feature on the continent. Um, and then you have to look at it in the context of the Madrid Protocol. And, you know, I, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but the, the bottom line is the Madrid Protocol is a, a additive document that prescribes what economic activity can be done on the continent. The answer is basically none, nothing, nothing very little commercial activity, and certainly nothing extractive, mining for rare earths, um, you know, mass fishing. What the Chinese have, have started doing is very, very much a, a disinformation campaign. Chinese scholars have begun writing that the Antarctic, the Madrid Protocol to the treaty expires in 2049. It does not. It just doesn't expire. That's, that's propaganda. 
no scholar anywhere else in the world believes that the Madrid Protocol expires in 2049, but they repeat it over and over and over again with, in my opinion, with the goal of laying the foundation for um, a, a kind of similar to the nine dash line or similar to other other uh, kind of united front type activities that we've seen, laying a, a predicate for just ignoring the treaty, beginning to do extraction at some point, beginning to do mining, beginning to do commercial fishing, and then saying to the world, well, it expired, sorry, and, and going about their business. And I think when you take all of this in context, we get into a place where um, I, I have a lot of concerns about what the next decade or two decades is going to look like from China and Antarctica. This just sounds like the pattern the Chinese Communist Party has done everywhere in the world. Why? It's like the writing is on the wall. Why isn't you know the Western world really concerned about this? I think it's it's a lot of Antarctica is far. It's cold. It's not. You know, we don't have a permanent population. The treaty, I think, is one of those things typical in Washington. And I would go so far to say as Canberra and Wellington, um, where it's seen as it's been there since the late 50s. It, it works for the most part. You know, we made it through the Cold War without some sort of major, you know, conventional military clash in Antarctica. It's seen as just kind of a, a basic good government um treaty that doesn't have a lot of focus. You know, when I was in the government and I would try and, and work with the folks uh, who, who do this issue uh, in the State Department, it's it's the, the folks in the, the bureau that handle science who are focused on Antarctica. You're, you're not going to find people who are strategists and, you know, people who are focused on the China threat uh, that's not who's focused on Antarctica. And so, you know, we've had this mentality for 60 years that Antarctica is a, a place for scientific inquiry and it's, it's peaceful because that's what the treaty says. And unfortunately, like so much else, like fishing globally, like space, like cyberspace, like the deep sea, China doesn't view these global commons the same way we do. You know, and, and I, I think what we've got to do is raise awareness in Washington um, that this is no longer simply something that can be handled by the people at the National Science Foundation and the folks in the the you know economic bureau at the State Department or the the cultural bureau. This has to be something that's thought of and, and handled by the the Pentagon, by the the China hands at the State Department and the National Security Council, by the Coast Guard, by the Navy. Um, this this needs to be treated the same way we treat other areas of significant great power competition. It sounds like what you're saying is that in addition to the Space Force, the U.S. also needs the Ice Force. <laughs> yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be the next uh, the next service. But in the meantime, what we need is we need the U.S. Coast Guard uh, fitted with icebreakers. We need to go back to a, a force posture where the Coast Guard is is operating icebreakers. You know, this isn't just Antarctica. You know, this is the Arctic too. The Russians have 40 or 50 uh, icebreakers, quite a few of which are nuclear powered. The Chinese are building icebreakers. The United States needs to be investing in something. If we want to continue to be a polar power, both North and South, we have to have the tools to, to be one. And if we don't have icebreakers, uh, if we don't have the the well-maintained C-130 
lift capability to get to the poles, we're going to abrogate that that responsibility. And so the, you've got to make these investments now, or we're going to wake up one day and we're going to be a, uh, we're going to be dependent on the Chinese to let us into Antarctica. I, I really believe it's that it's it's that much of a um, sleeping threat that it's just another example of Washington kind of taking its eye off the ball and the Chinese moving into a, a space where there's not sufficient attention at a high level. So you're saying if we don't like stop this now, China will at some point eventually completely take over Antarctica and restrict access to everyone else? So, you know, you, know, you all know nothing with the Chinese is, um, at least so far, whether you look at South China Sea or East China Sea, nothing has been that um, immediate and there's always nuance to it. But what happens is the eye comes off the ball in the West. We assume that the Chinese operate by the same sets of norms and international standards that we do. And the cycle repeats itself over and over again. They then make calculations based on their interests. They operate on an entirely different set of, of factors than, than Washington does. You fast forward five years, 10 years, the Chinese begin making investments. They begin uh, building up their capabilities. They begin uh, you know, pressuring other powers who have similar interests, using economic coercion, using United Front activity, using diplomatic coercion. Uh, and they gain increasing preponderance in whatever the, the theater is. And we see it in the South China Sea, and we see it in the Arctic. Uh, and next thing you know, it becomes more and more difficult for the United States to operate in whatever the theater in question is. And so I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that over time, if we don't increase our capabilities, if we don't get our allies to focus on this the way that they, they should be and the way we should be, uh, and the Chinese continue on the path that they're on, I don't see it as out of the realm of possibility that you could have some form of uh, anti-access, whether it's it's kinetic, whether it's simply by, uh, you know, whether, whether it's de facto, whether it's uh, any number of things. I, I don't see it as out of the realm of possibility that there is a Chinese anti-access effort in Antarctica. And that could take a number of forms, but I don't think that's out of the question. How is, because you mentioned the South China Sea, and um, one of the things they're doing there is really trying to kind of bully politically and on the ground the other countries that have claims in the areas. How are they dealing with other countries in Antarctica? Are they are they kind of coming in and being like, we're going we're gonna to be here? Or are they trying to cooperate scientifically? What are they doing? So one of the interesting things about scientific cooperation, and I, I've got to give a shout out here to Professor Anne-Marie Brady from New Zealand, who's done brilliant work on this. You know, her research shows that for all the talk about, oh, we're just, the Chinese are here just for peaceful cooperation, just for scientific inquiry. When she looked at the amount of peer-reviewed research coming out of Chinese scientists in Antarctica, uh, it, it, was, it was minimal. It was for all the major powers, they were producing almost the least amount of peer-reviewed Antarctic-related uh, material. So it, it really makes you wonder if they're so committed to, to Antarctic science and, and they're building bases and runways and they're determined to increase their presence, 
and they say it's in the name of scientific inquiry. Why is so little scholarship being produced? What, what are they doing uh, in these bases if they're not doing the type of science that lends itself to peer-reviewed publication? So and that's how the United States and New Zealand and Australia and the United Kingdom, even the Russians to some extent, that's how our scientific communities judge the success of our Antarctic programs based on what sort of, of new discoveries and, and new collaboration we can produce. The Chinese are not really a part of that game. So it leaves a lot of questions. And uh, you know, so far, um, we haven't seen a significant amount of bullying or coercion on the Antarctic continent. What I'm concerned about over the long term is that countries like New Zealand and Australia, who've already seen China play a very um, aggressive and coercive uh, diplomatic and economic game with them over other issues, could apply that same set of tactics to Antarctica. And that's where I think we've got to be really attuned to how are, Chi how are the Chinese interacting with our partners. And if we don't get this squared away, if we don't start making the investments to be our own, you know, we've got to take care of ourselves. We've got to be capable of providing for the resupply of our bases. We've got to be capable of, of doing our own inspections. We've got to be able to be self-sufficient on the continent. Um, you know, we're going to get into a position where a lot of our uh, partners and allies are very vulnerable to Chinese coercion. And we've got to be we've got to be mindful of that. Well, I can kind of see a world where like, you know, 10 years from now, China is like offering to supply all of the other countries bases with food and other resources, gas for generators. And then everyone's dependent on China to support the bases. America has lost the capability to do the resupply. And then what can we do to stop China from militarizing? Look, and, and anti-access doesn't just mean they're going to build a bunch of anti-ship missiles and keep everyone away, keep icebreakers away. It's, it's not that, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Anti-access could mean, you know, they, because they have been the ones who are focused on um, building infrastructure in the Antarctic, and if we allow our capabilities to continue to atrophy, it could be that the Chinese are the ones who, who have the equipment on site to, to do a lot of the work that's required to keep bases running. You know, the, there's very specialized equipment, whether it's snowmobiles, whether it's some of the, uh, the heating supplies that are needed to keep these, these bases functioning. It may be that the Chinese have just cornered the market on some of the capabilities you have to have in Antarctica to, to stay long term and to be successful. And it may be that they're, you know, we know how this works from a defense industrial base standpoint. You know, the United States doesn't really have a domestic uh, icebreaker uh, industrial base the way we used to. We're trying to get one back. Some companies are working on it. The government's supportive for the most part. Um, but the Chinese are making huge investments in an icebreaker industrial base that'll let them continue to, to build those, those ships and to keep supplying their, their uh, bases on the continent. So it really, this can manifest itself in a number of ways. And you can imagine scenarios where the Chinese, essentially, whether, whether it's de jure or de facto, the Chinese are, are in control of who and what can come onto the continent. And you have to enter into some sort of bargain with them to make sure, you know, to, to get the access that the treaty ostensibly uh, allows to everyone. And that's the scenario that, that I very much want to see us avoid uh, if we can start now 
doing the difficult things necessary to prevent it from happening. Are, are you saying the U.S. can't build icebreakers right now? I'm saying that the U.S., uh, it's been quite a while since we built one. Um, you know, this, we can have a longer conversation about American shipbuilding, but the United States is not building uh, very specialized ships. The United States uh, has some issues with building a number of specialized ships like this. And there are very few shipyards, as the number of U.S. shipyards in general continues to shrink. Um, there are very few yards that can do this work. And the ones that can, uh, it'll take them quite a, quite a while to do it. So in the Trump administration, the decision was made to proceed with leasing icebreakers from Finland, because that was going to be a faster route to getting icebreakers in service than going through the process of, uh, of building them domestically. Um, it's a real problem. I mean, we, we, there are a lot of key capabilities in competition with China that we allowed to atrophy. And as, as you guys know, a lot of those capabilities are things that through unfair trade practices or through um, you know, controlling different parts of the supply chain, the Chinese were, were very much involved in uh, allowing us to, to get to the point where we didn't have those capabilities. So icebreakers is just another example of where we've got we've to take a hard look at our industrial base if we want to remain competitive. Is well, the Biden administration carrying on the uh, leasing from Finland for icebreakers, or is that? You know, I have not seen any public change to that. Um, I hope it continues, and I hope at the same time, I hope we're going to make some investments, um, government investments, in an icebreaker capability. You know, you, there, there are things like building icebreakers, like having uh, you know, certain manufacturing capabilities that really, if the market uh, has failed and the market can't sustain that capability, the government's going to have to step in for national security reasons and make sure that we have that domestic capability. We can't be reliant on, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the leasing deal was fantastic and, and I, was, I was very involved in it uh, in the administration, but we can't be reliant on a foreign power to provide us with something as, as simple as an icebreaker that we need to ensure that we have access in both the North and the South Poles. And so we, we've got to make some, some national investments in things like shipbuilding so we're not stuck in a, a position like this. Well, I, I want to take a, a quick diversion that's not really a diversion to, to dig into this a bit because you kind of hinted that the atrophying shipbuilding capability and the loss of shipyards in the U.S. was possibly tied to China? Yeah, I mean, th this is a larger issue with the U.S. maritime industry. So the, the U.S. maritime industry started off after World War II, we were the predominant merchant fleet in the world. And we, you know, we've long had capability, we've long had legislation um, to try and protect the domestic shipbuilding industry from unfair foreign competition. Unfortunately, what has happened starting in the 80s and then moving on uh, to the present day is first Japan, then South Korea, and now China um, massively subsidize their state-backed uh, shipbuilding enterprises. And they, they provide uh, certainly not a level playing field, and they provide uh, the type of economic and financial support to national champion shipbuilders um, that the United States stopped doing during the Reagan administration. And so we have these kind of non, um, they're, they're not exactly um, 
so we, we have the Jones Act, for instance. So these are not direct subsidies. They're not direct payments to the shipbuilding industry. They're kind of informal ways of ensuring that we have a domestic industry. Um, Jones Act is, is great. It's critical. Unfortunately, since we don't domestically and directly subsidize our shipbuilding industry, uh, what, what happens is the Chinese come in at a much lower cost and they take most of the world's international maritime trade. And that, that just continues to put the U.S. industry farther and farther uh, in a hole. And the, if you look at uh, a graph of where the number of ships under U.S. flag and the number of ships built in the United States over the last 40 years, it declines year over year over year. Uh, and and you know, that's not just an economic problem. That's a national security problem. And it manifests itself not just in, in the merchant marine, but in things like icebreakers, specialized capabilities that require a really diverse and vital shipbuilding and ship repair industrial base. Um, and um, unfortunately, this has real national and strategic uh, security implications. Wow. So when ships aren't being built in the U.S., you're saying what's happening is like if China's building the ships, then the ships also end up staying owned by China and flying the Chinese flag. Like it's not like American companies are then buying those Chinese ships and other American ships, right? Yeah. So what I'm saying is the Chinese state-owned shipbuilding enterprises are going and they're building ships massively subsidized. They're either flying the Chinese flag and they have a significant merchant marine or they're being... uh, the Chinese built ships are flying Panamanian or Liberian or Maltese flags. And so either way you cut it, you end up with a significant Chinese uh, you know, shipbuilding presence around the world. Um, and so that, that's the concern that I, I really have is you know, there through a variety of domestic policies, they've been able to, to gain a significant advantage in that market. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't. We, we, we have through variety of, of domestic policy decisions in the United States, we've gone in the other direction. And ultimately, what's what's happened is there are national security implications of those, those decisions. And one of them is in key areas, it could be icebreakers, uh, it could be certain types of, of uh, merchant and cargo ships, it could be things like uh, oilers and, and tankers. Um, we have begun to atrophy in our ability to compete globally in those those fields, and uh, it's a national security uh, it's a national security threat. Essentially, it gives China the power to control access to the seas. Well, it, it it's part of a larger. If if you look at how the Chinese view Alfred Thayer Mahan, the the naval theorist, they and you look at the writings of senior PLA and. Uh, admirals, and you look at, at you know, science strategy and different things that are, are I think, credible academic and, and uh, practical writings in China, they very much view trade as following the flag the way that 19th century European and American naval scholars viewed it. And th- there's very much a uh, holistic approach to having a global navy having a global merchant marine, having bases around the world to sustain both trade and a naval presence. Um, and, and in some ways, what you're seeing with the Chinese uh, industrial policy, uh, naval policy, uh, their approach to the merchant marine, their approach to overseas basing, 
their approach to expansion in places like Antarctica, the Arctic, the deep sea. You look at this uh, holistically, this, this is uh, almost like you're looking at how Western Europeans and the United States were approaching the world in the late 19th century. It's, it's really, uh, to me, it's really kind of a fascinating back to the future sort of, uh, sort of approach. Um, and we, we've got to get our heads around the fact that the Chinese are, are thinking of, of, they're looking at the world from a perspective that we no longer have. You know, that to them, industrial policy is not a dirty word. Um, they, they speak, as you guys know well, they speak about these things in terms of spheres of influence and in terms of, of uh, control of resources. And it's a very uh, kind of pseudo-Bismarckian approach to the world. Um, and we've got to understand that when we're making national level policy decisions. Well, it seems like over the years, the U.S. has become aware of this kind of uh, uh, thinking in the Chinese Communist Party in uh, the South China Sea or even the Arctic. Uh, why is that not being recognized in Antarctica? Well, I, I said this earlier. I think Antarctica, because it's far away. But the Arctic is far away, too, in a sense. I mean, I guess technically the U.S. Alaska. borders it. Yeah. yeah. So is that the difference between the Arctic and Antarctica? I think I think it's two things. One, because of the way the sea ice has melted in Antarctica, in, in the Arctic, it has generated more publicity for what's going on in the far north. Um, and if you look at the latest IPCC report, it talks about the melting of, of sea ice in the Arctic versus the Antarctic. And the Antarctic is much less likely to see those massive changes to its pack ice the way it is in the Arctic. So I think that's, in terms of getting public attention, that's a, a big part of it. Um, if you look at the Arctic, because Russia is probably the predominant challenger to American supremacy in the Arctic, um, I, I think that's also another reason why a lot of attention has been focused on the far north. Um, you know, it's multipolarity. It's multiple strategic competitors focused on the same area. Um, and the other thing is the, the uh, Arctic borders Alaska, and you've got uh, two U.S. senators and a congressman who are very focused on it and who um, are able to raise attention in Washington to the challenge in the Arctic. Remember, the icebreakers are primarily, from a U.S. policy standpoint, the icebreakers are primarily focused on the Arctic. The Antarctic is just kind of an ancillary benefit of, of this. Um, so, you know, I, I think for U.S. domestic political reasons, for geopolitical reasons related to Russia, for climate change reasons, I think you end up in a position where the Arctic is just something that gets a lot more attention and Antarctica, uh, you know, kind of gets short shrift. See, I have an idea. What we should do is America should take over the Falkland Islands. That'll work out really well. And then we make it a state and then we have senators and a congressman. And and they're now America is a near Antarctic state, or no, the no. South Island of New Zealand. Matt, Matt, that that that's totally stupid. This is a serious conversation. Clearly, what I'm getting from you is we need to double down on global warming so Antarctica starts to melt as well, and then China can't have a base there. Sure, why don't we just buy Greenland? That's the so I, I heard someone propose that. That was an idea. Someone very popular and well loved. <laughs> yeah. So. So, you know, the, the interesting thing about if you if you think about, you know, the, the Arctic versus the Antarctic, 
the challenge in the Arctic is it's a it's a more immediate challenge. We can visualize the Russian submarine going to the bottom of the of the of the Arctic uh, Sea and planting the Russian flag. Right. That that's something that um, you know Americans and policymakers can really uh, internalize. The Arctic's a little more inchoate. The Antarctic. It's it's you know we know that the Chinese are there. We know there are five bases. We know that there's there's some stuff going on that raises some red flags and some concerns, but it's much harder to get traction and to, to light a fire under people in Washington, no pun intended, um, just because it, it doesn't exactly, it doesn't exactly um, strike us as a, a day-to-day challenge. But my, my point to you is I think that if we don't act now, it is going to be a front burner day-to-day challenge. And that's why we have to make the investments today so we don't end up like the South China Sea five years from now. I mean, I think, is there is there some kind of complacency too in the Antarctic? Because, you know, like you said, we avoided any kind of militarization during the Cold War. Is there a sense that like, oh, well, that's over, like now it's just scientific and everybody's abiding by these treaties? Well, you have that, I think the treaty breeds complacency because there is no treaty in the Arctic. Um, in the Antarctic, you've had a treaty since the 50s that says you can't militarize, you can't do economic activity. It largely worked. It's often, if you go to these international law conferences, people hold it up as the great example of multilateralism and, and you know, common, uh, global commons and, and how we can, uh, we can come up with these international regimes that actually succeed. Because of that sense of, of kind of patting ourselves on the back, we, we really have just kind of put it out of sight, out of mind. And this is like, to me, this is like space. This is like cyberspace. This is like the Caribbean. This is like um, South Atlantic. This is like the Pacific Islands. This is like the deep seabed. So many places where the Chinese see kind of a, a vacuum. They see the West uh, without you know, having kind of let their guard down and they move into the seams in between these, these areas of, of focus. And um, next thing you know, you have a crisis on your hands because we, we have become complacent and we have taken our advantages for granted. China is definitely going to be doing the same playbook on Mars. I swear it will be the same thing. <laughs> so so are, are we doing, is America doing like, um, Drone flybys, like the kind of drones we use in the Middle East. Can you do drones in Antarctica? The Chinese research stations. I'll I'll, I'll tell you one one thing that I learned from my my time in government. There is almost nothing harder in the United States government than getting an unmanned aerial vehicle to do anything. That's more difficult than getting Congress to do something. But I thought I thought Obama like sent tons of drones across the Middle East. So so this is, that's my point that there are limited assets and everyone in Washington from the president on down wants to use the limited assets for whatever they think the most important thing is. And you know, look at Afghanistan. You're going to have most of our UAS capability probably focused on Afghanistan for the foreseeable future. You know, the the limited capability that's focused, unfortunately limited, should be more, that's focused on the Indo-Pacific, focuses on things that you can guess. Um, What we, you know, theaters like Antarctica or even the Arctic or uh, the South Atlantic or the Caribbean have to fight tooth and nail for capabilities. And then Antarctica has the, the 
uh, unique. I mentioned a little bit about the State Department and how at the State Department, it gets thrown into the scientific bureau instead of being something that's focused on by the regional bureaus who have all the clout. You know, you look organizationally, the way that the U.S. government expresses its interest in something is often based on how the bureaucracy is organized to address that issue. And so at the National Security Council, for instance, where I worked, the Antarctic ended up being uh, largely handled by a, a brilliant Coast Guard officer, but he was put in the same bureau, uh, the same directorate as the directorate that was doing border control and um, you know, handling uh, you know, all sorts of, of totally un- issues where Antarctica and the Arctic didn't really fit in. So th- there's an organizational challenge. The Pentagon's another example. Combatant commands, COCOMs. The COCOMs are not really set up um, to cover Antarctica. You know, does it, does it really fit in the Pacific Command or does it fit in, in AFRICOM or does it fit in, in SOUTHCOM? It's not really clear. So when you're talking about allocating assets to deal with something like China and Antarctica, uh, you, you organizationally were not really set up to have a lot of success there at the moment. It's it's interesting you say it that way because like, you know, when Trump created the Space Force, I mean, people laughed at that because it sounds silly, but in a way he was doing is saying organizationally, we need to handle space and certain space cyber stuff at a higher organizational level so it doesn't get buried down underneath the Air Force, right? Yeah, it's, it's all a statement of uh, all that stuff. It's all a statement of the president's focus, his priorities, his values. And you know that's what when people roll their eyes at how is the bureaucracy organized, it's really just a statement of what does our leadership care about? And uh, you know the Space Force is a great example of that. Um, when we were at the National Security Council, we reorganized some of the directorates um, so that ch- there was a China focus in other regional directorates. So there would be a, a director who was thinking about China in Europe, China in Latin America, China in different parts of the world. You know, so these are all different ways that the government can express what it cares about, and it, and it matters. So, so I think I was right about the ice force. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Biden, I've got a great suggestion for you. <laughs> uh, let me let me play devil's advocate. Um, I think I think it's clear the U.S. government does see China as a strategic competitor. Um, but as you said, Antarctica is far away. It's resource intensive to go there. Does it make more sense to challenge the Chinese Communist Party in regional theaters that are uh, easier to get to, like in the Indo-Pacific? Focus the energy and limited resources there instead of worrying about something that's difficult like Antarctica? So it's an important question, and it, it gets to the, the larger strategic point of, you know, one, what is worth expending effort on? Are there theaters that we should just cede to the Chinese? Um, I know that there's a lot of discussion now about, you know, the Chinese are going to suck us into to just endless quagmires um, and we're going to end up having to contest them in all these different theaters. Everywhere there's an OBOR project, we're going to get sucked into having some you know, fruitless counter-OBOR effort. My sense is um, that's a bit of a, I, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration of what's required to be successful. Um, you know, obviously prioritization is key. You can't be everywhere at once. We have to focus on the theaters that are most determinative for the long-term competition. So certainly the Taiwan Strait, the South China Sea, this is all, I, I think we all probably are in agreement, 
on where are the most essential places. But the amount of resources that are required by the United States to compete with China, or at least to not allow them free reign, is relatively minimal. So my argument is the U.S. remains, by all most metrics, I would say, all if not most metrics, the predominant power in the world, economically, militarily, culturally, diplomatically. We have the ability, if we have the will, we have the underlying capability to do simple things like build icebreakers, like provide for C-130s that can land on the ice, like make sure that we're doing the type of alliance and partnership management so that we're burden sharing with the Aussies and the Kiwis. So they're helping us do inspections of bases in Antarctica. And we're upholding one of the most important and successful international treaty regimes of the last 50, 60 years. These are kind of blocking and tackling basic global management skills that we have no reason to just concede. Um, you know, so I, I, I take your point that we have to be prioritizing things like, in my view, prioritizing uh, the balance in the Taiwan Strait, making sure that the South China Sea, we're, we're managing that situation as best we can. Um, but I would also argue that something like Antarctica is a bit of canary in the coal mine for how we're going to handle competition more broadly. And it doesn't take some sort of, of national mobilization to make sure that we can build some icebreakers, we can do inspections per, per our treaty commitments, and we can help our, our partners you know, keep our bases supplied. That's all kind of, to me, that's just basic good governance, um, superpower responsibility 101. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Alex. Uh, For anyone watching who would like to know more about China's role in uh, Antarctica, where should they go or where can they see more from your writings? Yeah, so I've I've written uh, about this in the national interest. I'm working on a larger piece on the topic. I would also encourage anyone who's really interested in this to read uh, Professor Anne-Marie Brady's uh, amazing book, China as a Polar Power, which covers both the North Pole and the South Pole. And she's written some larger journal, uh, scholarly journal articles on it as well. So I think there's a lot of material out there. And and one of the things Anne-Marie does is she actually reads Chinese language source material, translates it, and gives the reader a sense of how the Chinese are talking about Antarctica, which has really informed my view of the challenge uh, to look at their own words on the topic. Mm -hmm. I wish we would look at their own words more often. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, Take care. This was great talking to you about this. Thanks for having me, guys. Wow. So what I'm taking from this is is U.S.-China policy and me at parties has a lot in common. What do you mean, Chris? Trouble breaking the ice. Oh. How, how, like, what, how long did it take you to come up with that one? <laughs> oh, I've been sitting on it the entire yeah. podcast. Okay. <laughs> Amazing it hasn't melted. What? You're breaking the ice joke. That was, that was pretty good. It was, it was a hit. You know, I, I was also, you know, desperately trying to hold back all the pop culture references. I- including Evangelion. Evangelion. There's the which, is, second- which, by the way, is, is like 30 years old. So it's not really a pop culture reference. Uh, the new movie just came out. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just came out on Amazon. It's well, fresh. Sure. Okay. Uh, also, the second Stargate is in Antarctica. Uh, Stephen oh, yeah. King's It, all the Lovecraftian horrors that exist in Antarctica, the Mountains of Madness. A lot happens in Antarctica. I mean, you know, it's a it's a huge place. And 
I don't know exactly how many like square miles, but like it's giant and not just on a map where it looks super big. But if you look at like a globe, you can see mm-hmm. it's like it's very substantial. I you mean, could te- fit in the entire New York City inside of Antarctica. <laughs> you could fit so many New York states. It's unbelievable. Like just think like the amount of time it takes to fly across the United States, like the, the continental United States. It's probably not that different for Antarctica. Like that's how much space is in between stuff. Are you sure Antarctica is not bigger? It might be. It's also, I mean, technically, it's also an archipelago. Oh, true. If you, if you if remove you the ice, all the it's, ice. it's uh, like, yeah, a bunch of islands. But there's big land masses too. And some of the land masses are buried under like, you know, a kilometer of ice. So that's like. What's underneath the ice? Obviously, Lovecraftian horrors. There you go. Yeah. Okay. What's the matter, Shelley? Nothing. Are we going to actually talk about Antarctica? We're just going to. Oh, we are talking. We've been talking about it this whole time, Shelley. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, like, what happens if China gets to that second Stargate? Hmm. Is that more dangerous than the Russians having it? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Because then they'll just colonize other worlds. They will be the Guauld. I I uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the Chinese reboot of Stargate. Well, they will liberate all the... It'll be the same thing. They're liberating all these worlds from gold feudalism. What what I think, you know, right now, it's very hard to get to Antarctica. And so I can understand, like, the just the lack of resources going towards it. But we've seen how over the last, you know, 50 years, it's gotten easier and easier to get everywhere, right? Like, the amount of time it takes to get from New York to Tokyo... Well, there are uh, some very like, specific where, differences to Antarctica. No, no, no. no. I, and I get that. But like, you know, it would have been much harder for China, for example, to militarize Fiery Cross Reef in the South China Sea 50 years ago compared to like, the amount of technology, the amount of shipping, like the amount of just sheer stuff you could put on a boat, the you know drilling and building technology. All of this has improved so much that it makes every part of the globe more accessible. And so- I can imagine that five decades from now, should technology continue to progress at the insane rate it has been, like it'll be easy to do stuff anywhere. And, you know, once China has established its claims as they're trying to do now, and with the whole Madrid treaty expires and at the end of 2048 or whatever, by the time that happens, the technology will already be in a place where China can do an unbelievable amount of stuff. And then there's going to be just not much we can do about it because they'll have you know, planted their flag, so to speak. I mean, it, because I just worked on that episode we did on China Uncensored about China building a village in, or villages in Bhutan. What it really reminded me of is the fact that China first sent Tibetan yak herders to Bhutan to claim territory in the 90s. And they didn't have the capability to build anything there yet. So literally, there are just like these four Tibetan yak herders that they made stay in this area year round, just so they could kind of keep a claim on this land and kind of they had more herders around. They made them paint words like China on the rocks. As this is the, this is the level of the territorial claim going on. It's like wow. literally, we're going to paint the Chinese flag on rocks. Right. But and then what happened was that then they. You know, when they were able to, they started building roads. They started building. They didn't build that village until 2015. So they laid the groundwork pretty early. Yeah. So So like 20 years after they started. So right now we have five 
call them research facilities in Antarctica, as Alex says, right? And they're building, they've got a runway and who knows like the kind of infrastructure they can lay down. I totally think that China could try to settle Antarctica. I mean, they can definitely force their population to move lots of places. Well, I mean, look at what they did in the South China Sea, right? With their Sansha City that's mm-hmm. uh, in Woody Island. And visit, so visit the wonderful vacation resort of Antarctica. No, they, they well, could you, do it. There, you know? there are Antarctica tours that people pay 10000 even upwards of $70,000, $80,000 to go on. Yeah. I mean, those right now are like essentially luxury cruises and you can kind of go on land, but you can't stay there, mm-hmm. really. I, I saw I saw one that was only 75,000 pounds per person. And you I, fly on private jet to a couple different parts of Antarctica and there's a place to stay. But it's not like a hotel, right? It's like- yeah, a, It is like a hotel. Oh, really? Yeah. You like, can stay on the- You can stay in Antarctica near the South Pole. Hmm, interesting. And, okay, uh, that's much more expensive. Yeah, like I, I saw their videos, like a private jet and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I mean- I don't have 75,000 pounds. That's a lot. It's it's a lot of money. Uh, But again, like everything's going to get cheaper. Everything is going to, the technology is going to make everything easier. Uh, You know, I can imagine like, you know, Chinese built, a a Chinese airline uh, can go from, you know, Shanghai to, you know, Antarctica. It's a, it's a doable flight if you can refuel there. Yeah, I mean, look at exactly look at the South China Sea. They started building runways and facilities and they were like, "Oh, well, it's just for civilian use." You know, maybe in Antarctica they'll be like, "Everything's for scientific use." And then we'll uh, call them scientific tours and you yeah, can yeah. You and then you need people there, right, to kind of supply the scientific tours. So cities, you know, you know to to stay there year round, you'll need you'll need an economy there. You know, and, and you need you need you know some sort of policing unit to protect the civilians who are there providing the science, the mm-hmm. you know commercial stuff, and eventually people. missile launchers to protect all of this stuff from aggressive foreign, foreign powers. powers. Yeah, but really, this is exactly what China will be doing in space with their uh, supposed moon base on the dark side of the moon that they oh, want to build. Can't wait for the Chinese moon tour. Oh yeah, uh, Mars too. Like uh, I mean, Mars is going to be. You know, supposedly, like the Antarctic Treaty will be sort of the basis for how the international community handles Mars, but yeah, we see so how it's we going need in scientific China. cooperation. I, I mm-hmm. feel like the fundamental problem here is thinking that a treaty will stop the Chinese Communist Party from doing something. I like how yeah. I like how they were just like, yeah, it's it's done in twenty forty eight. Yeah, I, it's, but it's not. But it's not done. Well, it's like when they said, uh, you know, the Sino-British Joint Declaration. Just eh, it has no meaning. Well, they said it expired after the handover, essentially. But they only said that like a couple of years ago. Uh huh. Yeah. So the you know it's, it's a just historical whatever. document. Yeah. This treaty is a historical document. It was signed way back in yeah, 1950. Historical documents, Shelley, are totally irrelevant unless they're maps that show that China had a territory since ancient times. Right. You well, have to respect those. You have to respect those historical documents, Shelley. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, the idea of, like, I think it's interesting, like, how, how do you stop the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, I mean, like, they obviously want uh, the U.S. and other countries to be distracted, trying, like, do little stopgap measures all over the world. When, like, really, like, if you just cut off the money supply to the Chinese Communist Party, that basically solves everything right now. Easy. 
yeah. if BlackRock weren't suggesting we triple investments in China. Oh, so yeah. awful. But see, China has a trillion... Con- so I think I saw some kind of crazy number in Bloomberg about how big China's mutual fund market could be. Like $45 trillion or it's something big like enough that. to fit inside Antarctica. So, you know, BlackRock wants a piece of that. Oh, yeah. It's it's in the interest of its investors. Yeah, I mean, I think American corporate greed probably has a big part to play in Antarctica as well. Like, for example, if, like you, uh, Alex talked about shipbuilding, right? Like, it's cheaper for U.S. companies like Walmart and whatever to get stuff from China, and they don't care that all of those ships that are coming into the San Francisco Bay or New Jersey are Chinese-made and Chinese-owned ships. Well, it's a little more than that because, like, why is it cheaper to ship from the other side of the world? Well, it's being subsidized. Yeah, there was this article about how it's cheaper to catch salmon in the United States, ship it to China for processing, and then ship the salmon back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's... That's insane. insane. That's that's insane. I, but I also think that means there's probably some kind of screwed up policies in the U.S. that help make it that way. Well, I mean, I think one problem is that it's so there's there's no penalty for doing that, right? I mean, I get there's tariffs now, which is a start, right? But like, yeah, you can just do anything if you can find it a little bit cheaper, even if like the reason it's cheaper is because of you know, a foreign power messing with the rules. Well, I'm I'm saying I'm not sure it is entirely just that like, oh, China subsidizes things. There's probably also, you know, restrictions uh, in the U.S. that just make it cheaper to export abroad. Yeah. Well, the world is complex and uh, the solution is China uncensored trip to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll probably catch some frozen bacterial disease and bring it back with us. Yeah, that's that's not funny anymore. <laughs> well, was it a joke? <laughs> Antarctica is a freaky place. It is a freaky place. I think it's a cool place. I think it's a really interesting place. And uh, I'd love to, you know, do a flyover of some of those Chinese bases. I wonder... If you could actually fly over the Chinese bases. Without them shooting you down? Well, hopefully they don't have anything installed that can actually shoot planes down. But we don't know because we're not doing it. We're not going over there, right? We're That's not, true, we're not sending, yeah. uh, you know, unmanned aerial vehicles over, then we don't know. Satellites can only tell you so much. Well, I wonder if drones, how drones can even operate in that kind of weather. But, I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe, maybe... Uh, we can get some more advanced drones. Maybe China will build them for us and then we can just rent them. That's not a joke. That's, remember, what was that thing where like some, like was it Colorado that was trying to get Chinese DJI drones to like help in policing or something? I don't think it was Colorado, but during the pandemic, some city used these drones to like announce to people that they weren't supposed to be out out with ma- without masks or something and i think it was they were using dji drones i mean the, what's crazy about that is i s- actually saw footage of the chinese authorities using drones to to intimidate people during covid yeah i think we so it's like it's, we, that in an episode but we didn't only like um, the city didn't only take the chinese 
drones. They took like that entire authoritarian model of using drones in the skies to instill fear in the populace. Well, hey, China has no COVID cases. Oh, that's right. That's the new thing. No COVID in China. Well, they solved that if I think that they've gotten it right. They did. I saw this nice video of like, uh, you know, them spraying disinfectant in giant clouds everywhere. And that's all it takes. All right. It's gone. I think, and I think we should believe China on everything it says, not just on COVID, but also that they're only doing scientific research in Antarctica. Well, I mean, look at the treaty. It's worked so well. Until 2048 when it expires. Technically 2049, I think, is what he was saying. So so now that you've said that, Shelley, on the podcast, they're going to use this as evidence. According uh, to American experts. <laughs> I, I don't think they're going to use this. <laughs> Probably not. Anyways, anyway. thank you for watching this episode of China Unscripted. Uh, once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Chong. And I'm Matt Ganesta. We'll see you next time.